0: Well, let me pray as we open up the text again this morning. God, thank you uh, that we have this opportunity to uh, to gather together to hear from your word. I uh, thank you for the gospel of John and all that it speaks to us and teaches us about who you are and what you've come to do. And so I pray that as we look at these verses this morning that you would uh, move in our hearts, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, that you would draw us to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, this summer, as a family, we went on a few longer drives. And uh, one of the things that my wife uh, Naomi discovered was a podcast by uh, Miss Kay out of the States who was reading one chapter at a time the Narnia series. Uh, and I, I understand once she finished with the C.S. Lewis classic, she's going to move on to The Lord of the Rings and, and uh, read through those Tolkien classics as well. So that's going to be amazing too. And so on, on some of our drives, we listened to The Magician's Nephew, Uh, And then we listen to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now in this second book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, we as readers are are introduced uh, to a world of Narnia, this place where the world was once uh, so beautiful, but it has grown cold and dark. And then Lewis introduces us to four children who enter this snow-covered world through a magical wardrobe to learn that it's been winter in Narnia for over 100 years. They find that, that evil reigns, that actually hope itself is dead. But when these four children come and they start to walk through Narnia and they start to meet some of the inhabitants, they, they start to see a change. Those that live in Narnia have some hope again. And see, they find that in, in Narnia there was this ancient prophecy that said uh, when, when two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve appear... Deliverance would come. Things would change. And so the children who were coming were, were messengers of hope, but the, the hopes of the inhabitants of Narnia weren't in those children, but they were in someone else. The hopes were, were placed in a lion named Aslan. And so the children hear this old Narnian rhyme, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bars his teeth, winter will meet death, and when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. And so when these children, when these Pavensi children brought hope, uh, they brought it not in themselves, but in one who would follow their coming and bring deliverance. In the the prologue of John chapter 1, this is where we've been walking through for the last few weeks in John's gospel, so if you have a Bible, you can open up there. Uh, There's a message of someone bringing hope, a man named John, we know him as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He was bringing a message of hope, but not hope in himself, a hope in someone else. See, John points us to the to one who can fulfill all of our greatest hopes and, and satisfy our deepest longings. And so let me read for us John chapter 1, starting at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent the priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. I said, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What, what do you say about yourself? So John said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and so they asked him, asked John, then why why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? So John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. In this section, we are introduced to who John is. We find that there's a group of of religious leaders. Uh, John says, the the author says, the Jews have come. Uh, They sent a group to find out just who this John is. And they ask five questions. The first four are pretty basic. They're trying to figure out who this man is. They're kind of fishing for information. And they're asking who he is. And remember at this time in the first century that, that this, the place where this narrative is was a time of just massive expectation. The Jews were expecting the promised one to come. They were, they were waiting, they were looking. So, so there were lots of people who kind of cropped up and probably were asked these same questions. Are you the one? Are you finally the one that we've been promised and been waiting for for so long? But John assures them he's, he's not the one. He's not the Messiah. And so they ask him if he's Elijah. Now, that might seem like an odd question since the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament had been dead for hundreds of years, but John kind of seemed to share some similarities with Elijah. Consider in Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, Matthew talks about John the Baptist this way. He says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And if we compare that back to 2 Kings 1 verse 8 in the Old Testament describing Elijah, it said he, he Elijah, wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. But, but more than that, both, both Elijah and John were prophets of God who were, who were openly preaching against sin, particularly against the sin in the lives of those who were supposed to be leading God's people. Both Elijah and John called people to repent, to turn from their sin and turn back to God. Next, they asked him, Are, are you the prophet? Now, one thing I'm not sure that I noticed earlier, but, but look at the question they asked closer. They're not asking John, Are you a prophet? They're asking, Are you the prophet? Now remember, the ones asking these questions, they were sent from Jerusalem, the hub, the heart of Judaism. They would have been intimately familiar with the Old Testament and all the promises that were in there. So it's likely they had this promise of, or prophecy of Moses in mind that that we read in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It's him you shall listen to that's probably what they had in mind when they're asking are you the prophet but it's interesting in that these leaders are actually missing the point of moses prophecy if they ask john are you the messiah and then are you the prophet is asking the exact same question see had they understood what moses was talking about all those years ago that again that we have recorded in our old testament they would have known that the prophet was the messiah and so now in the book of Acts we can see a couple chapters later from where we are now that, that both Peter and Stephen call out the religious leaders not only because they missed the prophet but because they killed him when they crucified Jesus. And So then they ask maybe a simpler question. Well, who are you then? And John answers alluding back again to our Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 40, he he alludes there and he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Now the context of Isaiah 40 is the return of the Jewish exiles. When when we read this passage in the Old Testament, we see that because of the rebellion of the people of God, they were taken into exile by Babylon. And Isaiah 40 is a promise that God would deliver them from slavery. That the voice was crying out that there needed to be a road made for the exiles to come home. In essence, Isaiah 40 is saying, prepare yourself for God's salvation. Get ready, his rescue plan is coming. It's about to take place. So John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, saw himself as one doing basically the same thing, crying out to tell people to get ready for God's plan, the plan that was promised way back in Genesis chapter 3, and we've heard it, it promised so long all through our Old Testament, get ready, it's about to come to fruition through Jesus. So John called people to repent, to turn from their sin, and to believe in Jesus as their Savior. The questioners come back then with one more question. Well, then why do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, not the prophet? Now, in a sense, John had already answered this question. His, his baptism was a part of preparing people for Jesus. This baptism was a visible sign of repentance. Repentance what John was doing was he was giving people an opportunity to publicly testify that they were turning from their sin, turning from their rebellion against God, and turning back to God, and they were waiting in faith for the promised Messiah. See, He baptized as part of his mission to, to ready the people for Jesus. Now today, when we baptize, and we just did this last weekend, we had a had a short gathering up at Quarry Lake, and we we baptized John, and and we'll share the full video of that in a couple of weeks' time in our Thanksgiving service. But when we baptize, we do it for similar but slightly different reasons. See, John, John baptized, and people waited for the Messiah. But we already know that Jesus has come. We know that God's rescue mission was brought to completion, was fulfilled, was finished by Jesus on the cross. And so when we baptize, like we did last weekend, we similarly baptize to declare our repentance, that we're turning from going our own way and turning to follow Jesus. And we go under the water to align ourselves with Jesus' death for our sins, and we come back out of the water, symbolizing the new life that we have in him. Back to John here, one thing that stands out throughout this conversation, I think, this interaction with these Jewish leaders, is his humility. The questioners, and this might just be my own bias as I read, but the questioners seem to be condescending and arrogant. Who do you think you are? Why are you doing this thing? Why don't you answer us? Do you think you know what we're doing? We're from Jerusalem. We know what's going on yet John responds with this beautiful humility, which is a lesson for, I think, each and every one of us and how we ought to follow Jesus and how we ought to answer the questions and how we need to point others to Jesus. Humility over arrogance. One writer said this of John's response. He said, listen, if, if I had been John, I would have probably said something like this. Listen, I'll tell you who I am. I am the last of the Old Testament prophets. My birth was declared to my Father by an angel. The Holy Spirit empowered me for this mission when I was still in the womb. The Son of God called me the greatest to ever walk the face of the earth. We can read that in Matthew chapter 11. That's who I am. Who do you think you are? But John, in his humility, points the conversation again and again to Jesus, and he says, I'm not the Messiah. He wants to make it abundantly clear that we're to be looking for Jesus, not for him. He doesn't draw attention to himself, doesn't make himself look great, but he keeps pointing to Jesus, keeps pointing to Jesus, keeps pointing to Jesus. He, he answers their questions, but effectively he says, listen, you can keep talking to me if you like, I'll keep answering your questions, but the one you should be looking for is Jesus, and I'm just one of his servants. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That's the one you need to know. See, our, our job as followers of Jesus, our job as the church today is a lot like John's. We're supposed to point the world to Jesus. Jesus. And so everything we do here at Trinity, and as individuals and families as well, but everything we do from, from the gatherings we have, from the outreach that we do, the, the missions we support, the, the projects we support, even the capital campaign that we're in, and this is not about making us look great and making a place more comfortable for us to hang out, but it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about seeing people transformed into fully devoted followers of Jesus. A little over a hundred years after the Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, died, one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, wrote this about how the influence of believers had spread throughout the Roman world. He said this, We are but of yesterday, we've kind of just begun. We have filled every place among you, cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum, Everywhere. We've left nothing for you but the temple of your gods. See, we gather together on Sunday mornings to worship Jesus, to learn more about him, to be encouraged by the word and encourage one another, and then we scatter throughout the week so that we can take his influence everywhere we go. We can share him with others. Wouldn't it be amazing if in the not-so-distant future, we could say, by the grace of God, we, we disciples, we Jesus followers, have filled every place in the Bow Valley. We're in Canmore. We're in Banff, we're in Ekshaw, we're in Dead Man's Flats, we're in all the neighborhoods, we're in the schools, we're in the groups, we're in the trails, we're on the ski hills, we're in the climbing walls, we're in the restaurants and coffee shops, we're in the offices, the grocery stores, the gyms, everywhere. We're everywhere so that the glory of God is saturating the Bow Valley. That's why we're here. So, who is John. Well, over and over again, he's described as a witness. He's one that is actively pointing people to Jesus. And so if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, the question is, is that a fitting description of you? Are you a witness or are you a bystander? Are you pointing people to Jesus? Are you giving testimony to who he is and what he's done? Are you, are you talking about these things or are you just letting life go by? If you're exploring faith, thank you so much for being with us this morning. John is is a key figure here in our exploration of who Jesus is. He's a witness. He's giving a testimony, a testimony that is true. And he's pointing you to Jesus. These next few verses describe his message. Let me keep reading from verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John also bore witness. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. These are the the things that, that John is an eyewitness to here, that he is giving testimony of. First, that, that God had given him a message. The Lord spoke to, to John and said, Listen, the one you see the Spirit descend and rest on and re- or remain on, this is the one. This is the one you've been waiting for. He's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Second, John testifies that he saw this happen in verse 32. We don't read that here in John's Gospel, but in the other ones we do uh, have those authors describe that for us. And it's interesting to me, uh, maybe, maybe to you as well, that, that he says that he didn't actually realize who Jesus was until all this happened. We read in the other Gospels that, that John and Jesus were actually cousins. So they may have even grown up knowing one another and, 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 and playing together and who knows what else. So definitely aware of each other. But he says he didn't realize what, that Jesus was the Son of God until this moment. When he saw, third, he saw the Spirit rest or remain on Jesus. That word for rest or remain is in both verse 32 and 33. In in the Old Testament, so in, in Jewish history or the history of the world up to this point, whenever the Holy Spirit came on a person, it was to empower them for a specific task. It was temporary. and We see this happening lots of times throughout the Old Testament. But what John is saying is he saw the Spirit descend and remain. It didn't go away. It was was there. This was something new. And so John right away recognized that this was the fulfillment of a a promise of God to send the Messiah. So he testifies right away to the deity of Jesus in verse 34. This is the Son of God. John begins these verses, this message, with a truly remarkable statement. He says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, what did he mean by calling Jesus lamb? I think sometimes if we've been around the church for a while, maybe we take this for granted. And if we're, we're new and we're exploring, uh, let's look at what John was saying here, because this was a very distinct statement. We'll look at three different reasons that Jesus was called the lamb here. The first, the lamb provides a sacrifice. And all of this is, is rooted in, in, in the Old Testament coming true in Jesus. Uh, these verses that we've just read in John chapter 1 happened just before the annual Passover feast in Jerusalem. We'll get there in chapter 2. And the focus of the Passover celebration that people would have been starting to gather for was the celebration of, of the sacrifice of a lamb that was a reminder for the people of God that God had, had freed them from slavery to Egypt, freed their ancestors from slavery to Egypt. Way back in Exodus chapter 12, we can read about this. And we're told that, that God is sending judgment on Egypt for, for their treatment of his people, for the way that they were going their own way as well. And so God said, listen, you need to, to his people, he said, you need to take a lamb, or kill it and wipe its blood on the doorpost of your home because I'm sending judgment, I'm sending death to the land. But every home that had done this, that had, had sacrificed a lamb in their stead, they would be passed over. So every year, the Jewish festival of Passover reminded them of that. But even more than that, beyond just, just the Passover lamb, uh, in the temple every day two sacrificial lambs would have been killed, one in the morning and one in the evening. Now John the Baptist, who, who is testifying here, his dad was a priest that, that served at the temple, so, so John would have been familiar with these sacrifices day after day after day after day. After day. A little bit later in our New Testament, the book of Hebrews tells us that these lambs had to die because, because of sin. The blood must be shed for sin to be forgiven. Read in Hebrews 9. And so this sacrifice, the lamb in the Old Testament, all through the sacrificial system, right into the time where John's writing, pointed to, towards the greater once-for-all lamb that would come, the one that would be sent by God and shed his blood for everyone, so that sin could be forgiven forever. And that's who we have in Jesus. Jesus was the once-for-all lamb sent by God to give his life as a sacrifice for everyone. Jesus is the one that Isaiah wrote about, again, centuries earlier in Isaiah 50. when He said, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The lamb provides a sacrifice. The second thing is the lamb provides a substitute. Now, in this sacrificial system, when, when a, a crime is committed, when, when a wrong is committed, who is responsible for bringing that lamb, for bringing that payment for the sin? What's the one that committed the crime, the one that sinned, right? But who brought this lamb? Who brought this sacrificial lamb? God did. Was there, was there some sin that God needed to have covered that he brought his own sacrifice to take care of? No, there was not. Nothing. God was offering his lamb as a substitute. See, you and I, you're the ones that should have to pay the price for our sin. and For all the ways that we have have effectively said to the creator of the universe, the one who who spoke the world into existence, the one who keeps everything under control, we've said, you know what, forget you. I'm going my own way. I I can figure this out better on my own. It's us that should pay the price for that. But God has provided a way of escape. He sent us. The lamb, the perfect one that could perfectly and completely pay for the penalty of our sin. See, Jesus, the lamb of God, as the lamb of God, died in our place for our sin. He's the only one whose whose death was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin. He's not simply a lamb of God, but he is the lamb of God. See, only through Jesus can we find forgiveness for sins. One more thing about Jesus as the Lamb of God. Did you notice that that all the questions the leaders asked John? They asked, Were you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? They never asked him if he was the Lamb of God, did they? It seems like, like they weren't looking for a lamb. They were looking for a prophet, maybe, or a king, maybe, but not a lamb. They were looking for someone to free them from Rome and and make Israel great again, but it seems they weren't thinking that they needed someone to deal with their sin, that they needed this lamb. As one writer says, they were right to expect a king. Jesus will reign over all the earth, but they they didn't pay close attention to the prophets. Before that king would ascend to the throne, he must first lie down on the altar. Before he would come as a conquering leader, he must first come as crucified lamb all these religious leaders were interested in was seeing the Lion of Judah. And he did come, but he first came as the Lamb of God. John Piper writes in his book, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, that the Lion of Judah conquered because he was willing to act the part of the Lamb. He came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday like a king on the way to a throne. He went out of Jerusalem on Good Friday like a lamb on the way to the slaughter. He drove out the robbers from the temple like a lion devouring its prey. And then at the end of the week, he gave his majestic neck to the knife and they slaughtered the lion of Judah like a sacrificial lamb. See, Jesus conquered Satan, sin, death, and sin itself by sacrificing himself as our substitute. He was the lamb offered by God for our sin. Finally, The lamb provides a satisfaction. See, Jesus' sacrifice fully satisfies the demand for justice. See, our sin, again, our rebellion, the ways that we have gone our own way and and, and gone away from what God has called us to or how he's instructed us or the, the ways that he has told us to live our flourishing life, when we go our own way, that deserves punishment. It's a crime that has been committed. It's an offense that needs to be made right. But the death of Jesus fulfills that need. It fulfills the punishment that justice demands. See, as we opened our service, yes, God is gracious and compassionate and kind as we read in Psalm 145, but he is also holy. And because he is holy, because he is just, We who are not altogether perfect or good or holy cannot even come into his presence without that chasm between us needing to be crossed. We just, we can't be there. However, Jesus, the Lamb of God, offered his perfect life on our behalf, and in doing so, he has made a way to pay the price for our sin. Paul and Romans chapter 5 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath, from the justice of God? See, the good news is this that, that you and I, we don't have to pay for our sins. We never could. But Jesus has already done it. You and I don't have to endure the wrath of God, the justice of God that our sin deserves because Jesus already has. Jesus came to take away the sin of the world and completely satisfy the justice of God. And so as we wrap up, John's message in these verses was a message of hope. It was a message that we have no hope other than to flee to Christ, to flee to Jesus. And you know what? We need no other hope than that. See, Because of Jesus, our sin has been forever dealt with. Our guilt is dealt with, and we are free from the power and penalty of sin. In the climax of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan, the great lion, marches to the stone table and is murdered by the white witch. The two girls from the beginning, Lucy and Susan, they cry themselves to sleep at the feet of the dead lion, feeling hopeless as the evil witch's army marches on to make war with Narnia. But then we read this. The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All colors and shadows were changed. that For a moment, they didn't see the important thing. But then they did. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end. And there was no Aslan. Oh, 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 cried the two girls, rushing back to the table. It's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have at least left the body alone. "'Who has done it?' cried Susan. "'What does it mean? Is it, is it more magic?' "'Yes,' said a great voice behind their backs. "'It is more magic.' And they looked around, and there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan himself. After the girl's initial shock had worn off, Susan asked Aslan, "'What does this mean?' "'It means,' said Aslan.' But though the witch knew the deep magic, there's a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little farther back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards that's the message of John that Jesus the lion from the tribe of Judah offered himself as the sacrificial lamb so that traitors like you and me could be forgiven that justice would be satisfied and death itself would be broken let me pray God thank you for this time thank you for this text thank you for John Help us to learn from John the Baptist to to keep pointing people to you with humility, to answer the questions and the concerns and maybe even the the hard persecutions, the criticisms that we get, and just keep pointing people to you. Thank you that he knew and and showed us that you were the lamb. Thank you, Jesus, that you were the, the lamb that provides satisfaction for God's justice that you were the lamb that was a substitute so that, that we can cling to your good life, Jesus, as the substitute for our sinful life. And thank you that you were the, that sacrificial once-for-all lamb, Jesus. So again, that you, you came and you walked this earth in perfect submission and obedience to the Father, showing us how to rightly relate to God and others and creation itself. And, and then you gave up your life so that that chasm between us and God could be crossed, that we could be uh, by your work on the cross, Jesus adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God, so we might have life, life to the full. Thank you for this. Thank you for this text. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, if you.